Good to see all of you this evening, uh, Praxis. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris. I'm one of the ministry associates here at Lighthouse, currently serving uh, you guys here in Praxis. And I'm glad to see your faces uh, here on uh, Zoom. Uh, while I hope to be able to, to see and talk to you in person sometime in the future, uh, maybe during one of the outdoor services, if you attend, of course, social distance with mask on, uh, it's still a blessing to see you uh, here tonight uh, online. Uh, since we are God's people and we seek to draw near to him through the study uh, of his word. Um, if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, we've kicked off a brief series called Snapshots of Jesus for the Christian Life. Uh, the goal of this series and, and really the desire for, for all of us as a fellowship group is to become more and more exposed to Jesus Christ. Uh, you probably heard it said before that a picture is worth a thousand words. And that certainly rings true as we look at these brief snapshots of Jesus's life uh, and, and in the Gospels. And the hope is that uh, we, as we look at his life, his, his interactions with people, uh, his ministry, that these portraits of Jesus would inflame our hearts to love him more. That as your love for Christ increases, it will naturally lead to a joyful obedience and worshipful attitude as you seek to follow Christ into the new year. Because more often than not, we often take a, 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 back, a backward approach uh, when it comes to discipline, you know, spiritual disciplines. And it, it all it is is really just a discipline rather than a delight. And while we certainly should use the means of grace God provides us with to grow, uh, we often major on these means and treat it as a chief end, all the while missing out on the purpose of it all, joyful fellowship in communion with our Lord. Two weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, a portrait of Jesus and the paralytic man, and how forgiveness of sin is our greatest need in life. It's the need of every soul. And then last week, we looked at what it means to follow Christ from Jesus' interaction with blind Bartimaeus. We were encouraged by the reality that following Jesus is a natural byproduct of understanding our need for him, his love for us, and the great gift of salvation. And that brings us to this evening. Now that we understand our greatest need and how God richly supplies forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ, and that our lives should be marked by following Jesus daily, we're brought with this question. What does that look like? So this evening, we'll be looking at the idea of fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. After all, fellowship with God is that vertical dimension and the primary means by which we follow after Christ as his disciples. And to do that, we'll be moving away from the gospel according to Mark and focus our time this evening in the gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible, I would uh, please encourage you to, to, to turn with me to uh, Luke's gospel. Uh, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52 for our time this evening. And what I'm going to do is I'll read our passage for tonight and then pray for our time in the word this evening. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor, favor with God and man. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us for uh, we need you to steep to our frail and feeble minds. We need your help. Uh, we, and we ask that you would make your word clear for us tonight. Quicken our minds to be attentive and free from uh, unnecessary distractions, Lord, so that we may uh, present ourselves uh, to be attentive while listening and watching at home through Zoom. Uh, may your spirit help us to see wonderful and glorious truths tonight, Lord, as we look at the life of Christ, and that I would be used as a broken jar of clay to point others to the treasure that Jesus is. We ask this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently came across a, a brief video clip uh, showcased on The Atlantic um, titled, Are Helicopter Parents Ruining a Generation? I had no idea what the term was or where it came from, uh, but having researched this cultural term that uh, has been picked up in social development circles, it's, it's a style of parenting characterized by an obsessive focus on their children's lives. A sort of like a police helicopter hovering with a spotlight on a potential suspect who's uh, a danger to himself or to others. And it's this mindset that an overly protective parent has that can get in the way of your kids' lives and their ability to take responsibility for things themselves as well as be accountable for their own outcomes. And while we shouldn't uh, get our paradigm for parenting from random news articles uh, that we find online, uh, there are instances where Christian parents can be helicopter parents. Uh, Ephesians 6.4 doesn't say helicopter parents, but it says, Father, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Uh, which means that parents, due to maybe their idols or insecurities, can sometimes get in the way of their biblical role as a father and mother, and how to apply the gospel to their family life. And so why do I bring this all up at all? Well, because in our passage tonight, as we just read, we're left with this looming question as to whether Mary was in the right in, in what she said in her tone to Jesus, 
or was she in the wrong? And spoiler alert, uh, well, Jesus's response to Mary's concern uh, was, was right, okay? Jesus is always right, I think we know that. But Jesus's response to Mary's concern didn't necessarily imply that Mary was a helicopter parent. But there still is a lesson to be found in this unique interaction between Jesus's earthly parents and his heavenly father. And I want to propose that this interaction is really about having a proper view of Jesus's relationship with God the Father, a relationship that Mary didn't fully grasp, she didn't fully understand or comprehend. There are certain values, there are certain priorities that Jesus understood about his relationship with God. Jesus understood this relationship to be foundational for everything else in life, including the dynamics of earthly families and our interactions with them, just as he demonstrated. And um, to that end, we'll explore this key idea from our passage this evening. And the key idea uh, for us this evening is this, that our fellowship with God deepens as we find greater joy in drawing near to him. Just for a little context, the gospel according to Luke stands out among all the other gospel accounts that we have in the Bible. In fact, Luke is actually the only gospel that talks about Jesus as a kid. With all the other gospels, we get some kind of information about his birth. Uh, but then there's just this large time skip, you know, to, for those of you who like read manga, read anime, or, or just any story, to when he begins his ministry as a 30-year adult, you know. So we have this gap. So in the beginning of chapter 2, Luke records the birth of Jesus. After that, shepherds get word from an angel about uh, angel Gabriel about the birth and decide to pay baby Jesus a, a visit. Uh, what follows is Joseph and Mary dedicating Jesus as a baby and in accordance to the purification laws of that time. Uh, this dedication of Jesus and purification practice for Mary takes place when Jesus is almost about two months old. And then if you look to chap uh, chapter two, verse 40, we're told that Jesus grew became strong, uh, probably referring to spirit, but could be physical too, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Uh, then what? Well, if Luke were a film reel of Jesus's life prayed, uh, played for us on Netflix, there would be this fade to black leading to our passage tonight. But don't lose sight of what Luke has said about baby Jesus during the interim period. Jesus grew. Jesus became filled with wisdom. You see, Luke highlights the fact that Jesus is not only fully God, but he's, he's also what? He's also fully man. Truly God, truly man. He has two natures in one person. And while that's a, a mystery and maybe a tension that we have to maybe always live with on this side of uh, heaven, it's the, the fact that humans grow. And that followers of God hopefully will grow in wisdom as Christ did. As we look at our passage this evening, Jesus is no longer a baby. He's no longer an infant. He's a 12-year-old boy. Yet what we see in this portrait of a 12-year-old Jesus is all inspiring and instructive for us. In verse 41, uh, Luke picks up on a well-known custom and practice in Jesus's day. Mary and Joseph, they, they went to Jerusalem every single year at the feast of the Passover. And they were devout and, and pious towards God, even if they didn't really have Jesus all figured out yet. 
I mean, imagine the pressure they must have felt when they were given the TLDR on parenting from Angel Gabriel. Oh, by the way, you're going to raise the son of God. You're good, right? Now, maybe Pastor Allen or, or Gavin would be up to it and be like, I got this. But if I were in Joseph's shoes, I'd be trembling. I had intrepidation and, and read Paul Tripp's book on parenting like every single week. That's how unequipped and unprepared I'd feel. But what was this Passover feast? Well, Passover was a major feast celebrated at the beginning of the Jewish calendar year, which would have taken place around March and April, if we're trying to correspond with our calendar. And basically, this is a feast to remember God's miraculous deliverance from their Egyptian slavery, uh, their, their captivity, uh, deliverance from uh, the, the death uh, by the sprinkling of the lamb's blood on the door of their homes uh, when the angel of death passed over, as well as deliverance through the parted Red Sea and entrance into, entrance into the promised land. But this particular Passover celebration was special. Luke records this incident taking place when Jesus is 12. Maybe you're thinking, uh, what's so special about Jesus going to Jerusalem at the age of 12? Well, it's special because going up at the age of 12 was a custom and tradition of their culture. It's the age of transition because at the age of 12, you're considered a child. And at the age of 13, you're considered an adult. It was a rite of passage for the last year of their childhood. It would be similar to how modern Jews uh, celebrate and acknowledge the coming of age ceremony known as bar mitzvah or for boys or bat mitzvah for girls or other cultures that have something similar. Like in Japan, when you turn 20, you might experience a, a coming of age ceremony called seijin no hi. Probably butchered the pronunciation there. Please apologize. I apologize. Uh, girls from traditional Hispanic homes may have gone through a celebration known as uh, quinceanera when they turned 15. And all that's to say, Passover at the age of 12 was a special event. It was when boys would soon be recognized as men. And attending this Passover feast as a 12-year-old was like preview week. It kind of prepped them for the responsible realities of manhood. Fathers would be expected to, to, to pass on the mantle of the instruction of, of God's word, the, the Torah, and that they would teach their son the law of Moses. No further elaboration about the Feast of Passover is provided for us here in Luke. The story just continues. And the plot thickens. Like all other good celebrations or feasts, they must eventually come to an end. In verse 43, we see that it's time to pack up and go home. Joseph and Mary's family uh, wouldn't have been the only ones making the trek back home either, because the custom of that day was to travel together, you know, to, to caravan uh, to all the, the major feasts in Jerusalem, like Passover. It was a very tight-knit community event. So they would have likely caravaned and, and gone together with many other families, which included men, a woman, and children. And traveling together meant greater protection as well. It was a deterrent for robbers uh, due to their strength in numbers as they rolled deep through the desert. Now, the women and children would be grouped probably all, in all likelihood in proximity with one another uh, along the caravan trail, while the men and the older boys uh, would stick and be grouped together. And so this is probably why Joseph and Mary didn't realize right away that Jesus was left behind. 
Mary probably assumed in a, in a large caravan group that Jesus was with Joseph. And Joseph probably thought Jesus was with Mary. Or that Jesus was being watched with the other community children by some adult neighbors, you know, since they went together and they could trust each other. Since it was a traveling caravan. And so as they journeyed back home after a long day's travel, they would pitch their tents in the evening to rest. You can imagine the families and friends gathered all together in one area, ready for dinner and to share the stories about the recent trip to Jerusalem. But then a shocking revelation sinks in. A, a terrifying feeling uh, the parents hoped to never experience. Joseph and Mary uh, suddenly realized that their son is missing. And the looming question that emptied Joseph and Mary of any sentiment of bliss and instead filled them with anxiety and fear was this. Where's Jesus? Where is he? Was he with you, Mary? No, no, no. I, I thought he was with you, Joseph. They must have looked through the whole caravan and asked everyone that they had traveled with, have you seen my son? Was he with you? Or I didn't see him in the caravan. Do you know where he might have been? But no matter how hard they tried that evening, they couldn't find him. So what are they to do? As any concerned parent would, they, they try to think calmly and level-headed about the situation before them. We read in verse 45 that they, they journey back to Jerusalem to search for Jesus. The, the last place that they remember being with him. Maybe some of you have experienced something similar before. The experience of being left behind or leaving someone be important behind. And that left you thinking, how could I forget that person? Maybe there was a time where you were left behind at Disneyland when your parents lost sight of you before as a kid. Maybe it was a family vacation or something similar taken from the script of Home Alone, film, the film series. Well, you can imagine the weight of responsibility on the shoulders of Joseph and Mary. We've just lost God's son. God's child entrusted to us to care for, to steward. So they continue the search as verse 46 ex explains. Finally, after three days, they finally find Jesus. It could have been three days uh, to search in Jerusalem, or it could have been two days, if you're considering a, a day it would take to travel all the way back from where they were camped. But regardless, time felt like it slowed to a screeching halt for the concerned parents. Each minute and hour without finding Jesus grew increasingly painful for them. It would have magnified their concern. And after a drawn out and exhausting search for the son, for their son, they feared that they had lost. Where do they end up finding him? The temple. Jesus was in the temple court area where all the religious teachers and scholars of the law would gather. The doctors, the PhDs of rabbinical studies would gather here. Why? Because the temple represented a center of religious learning. If you wanted to study and, and dialogue with the, the most knowledgeable, well, you had to go to the cities. You had to, to flock toward the Ivy Leagues of religion that day. And not in a small town called Nazareth, right? Which later, you know, one of his disciples would, would say, you know, like, what good can come from Nazareth? 
you have to flock to, 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 the, to the city, not, not, from, not in the countryside or rural areas. You see, Jerusalem for Jewish religious life was the place to be. So as Joseph and Mary search and peruse these various areas of the temple in Jerusalem, their eyes finally stumble and fall upon Jesus. They find the boy among all these advanced Jewish scholars and bastions of towering intellect in the area of their expertise. But before Luke zooms in on the parents' response, he draws our attention to the reaction of the religious teachers in Greece. They were nothing short of being spellbound by their interactions with them. Not only did Jesus keep up with these scholars and religious teachers, he's able to ask them insightful questions and provoke their own understanding. You see, Jesus wasn't faking it until he, he could make it as a 12-year-old boy. This boy, Jesus, was a bona fide prodigy, a true genius. And Luke records in verse 47 that all who heard him were, were amazed at his understanding at, and at his answers. In other words, his wisdom astonished the crowds of teachers. They realized that while Jesus may have been small in physical size as a, as a boy his age, when it came to understanding God's word, they were walking among a spiritual giant. He had a mastery of scripture. He's like the original master seminary professor and, of course, better than John MacArthur. Now, despite whatever credentials or renown these well-known scholars and teachers might have had in the Jerusalem temple, Jesus could run circles around them. Despite their amazement, despite how impressed they were of boy Jesus, Mary and Joseph enter the scene amidst the heat of this spectacle. Having frantically searched all over Jerusalem and the temple, they finally find Jesus. At last. Verse 48 tells us that when the parents saw him, they were astonished. Notice the teachers in the temple were amazed, but his parents were astonished. You see, they were surprised and amazed to see Jesus talking with the teachers in the temple. But they have other emotions as concerned parents would up until this point that they found him. Mary and Joseph are likely complaining that Jesus doesn't seem to, to grasp the, the situation, to see the fuller picture. While he's talking about scripture, his parents have been searching all over for him for the past few days. You see, from their vantage point, they thought, how could you be so insensitive towards us, Jesus? We're your parents. We've spent all this time looking for you. We were worried about you. But Jesus uses this opportunity to correct, to gently correct and instruct his parents' misunderstanding. And he does that in verse 49. He says, says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What Jesus says is profound. It is a watershed moment in our passage, but also the first time in all of Luke's gospel where Jesus speaks. Some of your Bibles may indicate this more clearly, especially if you have one, one of those Bibles where Jesus' words are printed in red letters. Anyways, what Jesus said is truly a, a, a mic drop moment. 
If ever there was an opportune time to turn Jesus' words into a viral meme, uh, this is it. But his parents don't understand what Jesus is saying. They're like, wait, what? And so when the author Luke points out their lack of understanding here, as well as other instances in the gospel, when Jesus is misunderstood and, and people just don't really get who he truly is, it should cause us to pause. We really need to slow down and consider the weight of Jesus's words. There is more than meets the eye here. You see, Jesus understood what he was saying. Jesus, in a very maybe indirect way, reveals that Mary doesn't know who Jesus truly is. Any of you know that Christian song, Mary, did you know? Well, Mary here don't know. His parents haven't fully grasped the full identity of Christ. Despite what the angels told them, despite what others have said and prophesied about their son, it really hasn't settled in yet. You see, Jesus had for his age a great sense of self-awareness. He was conscious about who he was and the close relationship that he shared with his, uh, his father, Heavenly Father. He knew that he was the son of God and that he must be in his father's house. Where else would he be? But then with his heavenly father, his parents should have known where to look and where he'd be despite searching for the whole three days. The temple represented the father's house. Why? Because the temple symbolized where God dwelled in relation to his people, right? Proximity. It's where his holiness and glory was revealed in the Holy of Holies. This was demonstrated through sacrifice offered in the innermost sanctum of the temple. The temple was and where one could learn and be instructed in the things of God. And so Jesus identifies with the temple because he understands the priority, his relationship with the Father meant that it deserved the utmost attention. His father deserved and, and wants to be with him. And so as the son of God, he sought to always obey the perfect will of the father. Already as a boy who's only 12, he demonstrates a strong longing to, to fellowship with his father and to know him more. And all that goes to show that Jesus knew the special and privileged position he has as the son of God. But Jesus's earthly parents didn't get it. 12 years ago, before the incarnation, the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would give birth to the Son of God. So they should have known Jesus' identity and that God the Father would eventually play a big part in baby Jesus' life. But maybe they forgot. Maybe they thought that they would have Jesus for many years to come. That as a baby, as Jesus grew older as a child, that, and as a life gets more and more convenient and comfortable, if they forgot that. Perhaps Jesus' parents didn't want any big changes in Jesus' life that would throw off any plans that they had for him. And perhaps they forgot the painful prophecy that Simeon had for Mary. In order for the salvation of many, what will happen to Mary would be like a sword piercing through her own soul. Luke 2, verse 35. Maybe the truth of what was in store for Jesus was too hard for her to bear. 
Maybe she wouldn't truly understand until she experiences that sword pierce her own soul as she watched her son struggle to breathe his last while being crucified. Yet when we look to the true Jesus of the Bible, of which we now have more information than Mary ever had in her day, we see that Jesus ultimately would grow and did grow as a boy. He would mature as a son of God so he could die on the cross as a substitute for our sin and rise three days later so that we too may have eternal life if we believe in him. But Jesus was looking to the father. He was looking to be in his father's house. You see, he understood this key truth. That you become what you behold. You become what you behold. The heart of someone who desires fellowship with God and understands the joy it is to fellowship with him reaches out and declares like the psalmist, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish again. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Psalm 119, verse 36 to 37. You see, if the practical uh, implication and application for us is that if we're not beholding the glory of God of the Lord so that we may be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What then are we beholding besides Jesus? We follow the same blueprint as Jesus if we want to grow deep in deeper fellowship with God. Jesus' uh, father is also our father as well, since he has adopted us as his children through Jesus's Christ, for Jesus Christ's sacrifice, right? We've been adopted into his family. So praxis, when you think about fellowship with God and you think about drawing near to God through spiritual disciplines, like maybe time in the word or, or prayer or fellowship with one another in the, in the church, how do you view that? Do you see that as a means to behold God? Do you see it as a habit of grace when you draw near to him in fellowship through these means? And I just want to really talk briefly about that. Beholding God through his word and prayer. You see, God's word shapes us to be more like Jesus Christ. If we want to become more like Christ, we have to behold him more. And that doesn't mean fit, like some kind of mystical meditation, like alms or singing Kumbaya with your eyes closed and saying, Jesus, come over and over like a hundred times. You see, beholding God comes from beholding his word. Transformation comes by the renewing of your mind with God's truth, Romans 12, 2. And renewing your mind through God's word is also how you will grow in wisdom and discern God's will for your life. The better you know God through his word, the better you can enjoy your relationship with him. It is beholding God through his word that provides the means by which we grow and we imitate Christ. Right? Just like a child who spends a lot of time with his father will eventually grow to adopt similar or the same mannerisms, the same quirks. Right? Beholding God through his word helps us to grow to be like Christ, which ultimately glorifies and exalts our God. But even more than that, it's how God wants to communicate his heart for you. 
And that's why Jesus went and spent time in the temple, his father's house. Even after a week in Jerusalem for Passover, he wanted to be in his, his father's presence. You see, when you're enjoying time with someone, you kind of lose track of time. You're not like, oh, well, check the box here, 30 minutes, oh, time to go. Because you're cherishing the precious moments with someone you care about. That as time goes by, that, that, that time really does go by when you're having fun. And here's a more sanctified version. Time goes by when you're having fun getting to know Jesus. You see, beholding God through his word and prayer increases the quality of our fellowship with him as well. It grows our relationship with him. You see, if Jesus didn't spend time with his father, what would that, what would that say about the quality of his relationship with him? Therefore, how much more than for us who are not Jesus, you know, we don't have that divine nature, need to study and meditate on God's word, knowing it's the means by which we can grow the quality of our relationship with him. You don't need to take an interpersonal communications class to teach you the importance of listening and speaking and how that can impact your relationships. Fortunately, I had to take one for my business degree, but... It's all good. We experience that in the various relationships we have with family, friends, coworkers, significant others. And you know, the same applies with your relationship with God. That being in God's word helps you to listen to him because by doing so, you hear his voice. And also when it comes to prayer, prayer helps us to speak to God's ear. Prayer lends to us God's ears so that he can hear our concerns, our, our troubles. And this is how we grow in relationship, right? When God hears us, right? And he answers our prayer. And he, he cares and provides and demonstrates that through answered prayers. Well, look with me now at verse 51 and 52 as we continue. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As we look to the end of this story, we see that Jesus wasn't trying to be disrespectful to his parents. He's, he simply displayed a profound understanding of where his priorities lie and what God desired for him at that time. Jesus was still submissive to his earthly parents in keeping with the law to honor and obey his parents. We're told Mary treasured up all that Jesus said and did. And what that means is that she pondered Jesus's words, that ponder, really reflected on that, right? Meditated on that, about Jesus's words and about Jesus being in the Father's house. And we would do well to ponder the same things, to ponder how me and you view our relationship with God. To ponder whether you have been in joyful fellowship with him. Or perhaps have been distant and far. Luke ends this portrait of Jesus only to show us that Jesus continued to grow and find favor with God and others. As Jesus sought to delight in his father's house and grow in knowing him, everything else fell into, into place for his life. He would gladly continue to submit to his parents even when he went home, which I'm sure pleased his heavenly father as well. It wasn't just a box to check off. There wasn't any sign that Jesus treated his relationship with the father or his 
his earthly parents like a mere duty. This was the son of God who loved the father and loved his mother. And that speaks to another aspect I want us to see, which is the joy of fellowship with God. Even if his first coming to earth would ultimately lead to betrayal, to, to scorn, abandonment of friends, he joyously sought the father's will. Even when, with the painful prospect of suffering the full brunt of God's wrath for sinners, Jesus draws near to the Father in Gethsemane and prays, even while his disciples, you know, fall asleep. And he, he prays, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even when Jesus was gasping for breath as he suffered the cup of God's wrath, the biggest concern on his heart in that moment was the intimate fellowship with his father that was temporarily severed and seized when he uttered, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translates to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even as Jesus breathed his last, he joyously shouted from his lips, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. So praxis, look to Christ's example. And can I encourage you to see that your joy in drawing near to God will increase when you begin to see God's word and prayer as a gift of grace as Jesus did. That these are two pathways of grace that God has given us to relate to him. And these are the pathways to deeper fellowship with our God. He has given us his spirit of promise to grow and transform us. And he has promised in his word that he will grow and transform us uh, through his word. Uh, how do I know? Well, read Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. Read, read all the Psalms. They're written by those who have experienced this deep and intimate relationship with God. And it shows. Perhaps as many of you, have, many of you here have uh, placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe in him. Uh, you consider yourself a Christian. You've been baptized. Uh, you attend in person or online church service regularly. Uh, most of you are probably even church members or looking to become one soon. You're coming out to practice just like tonight. You're, you're serving. And, and you know what? These are all great things, good things, right? And you know what? I'm not questioning whether you're saved or not. You know, that's not the issue for most of you. But I would reckon that some of you might be living life kind of like on like kind of cruise control, right? Autopilot, kind of continue to just do what you've been doing without considering the, 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 the direction or the bent of your heart. You're not considering your habits can ultimately impact your spiritual health. You're not considering the rhythms of your life, which has the capacity to change the tune of your life. Perhaps you do spiritual disciplines, but there's no passion in it. Days and weeks seem to be more characterized by duty, but very little delight. In practice, can I dare say that what is most needed is a fundamental shift in how you think about fellowship and communion with God. It's not, oh, I have to read my Bible and pray, but it's, I get to read my Bible and pray. I'm afforded the privilege to commune with the living God. 
I get to hear God's voice through scripture and how it bears in on my life tr and troubles and decisions as a proof of my relationship with the Lord and that I am drawing close. I, I get to share my joys and, and share my hurts with God just as a child gets to share with his or her father about those pains or maybe about the first day of school growing up or a new friend that was made. A few weeks ago, Pastor Wayne of the Family and Children Ministry here at Lighthouse shared with me a YouTube clip of this piano prodigy who plays this very difficult and technical piano piece that's, that requires you to make enormous jumps with your right hand across the keys at a very incredible speed. And not only is it a fast song, but you have to press these notes that are really, they're really farly spaced out. So, I mean, I mean, you have to have large hands because if you have small hands, it becomes infinitely more difficult. It's called La Campanella by Franz Liszt, just if you're curious, but it doesn't really matter. Anyways, the reason why Wayne shared the video with me was because I told him growing up playing piano, I struggled out of frustration to learn this particular song and ultimately quit and gave up. So he sends me a video of a blind prodigy who, who can learn, who learned and played the song. Very encouraging. <clears throat> He had the ability to learn and play the song, even though he didn't have the ability to see the key since he was blind from birth. And it didn't make me feel better, but it was inspiring. I only attempted to learn that song because it was regarded as one of the most difficult songs to play and thought I was up for the challenge. But I promise you, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to impress any girl from high school. Like, you know, it wasn't like Final Fantasy and Yurma is not working. So I need to learn some other harder songs. But when it came to practicing each measure of this song, one hand at a time, slowly increasing the speed and tempo by which I practice, I ultimately quit. Why? Because I didn't have the love or the discipline to get into the habit of practicing consistently or to put much, much time in it. And more fundamentally, I didn't count it a joy or privilege to play piano, so I quit. But when I saw this blind pianist play, I was in awe. I thought about how difficult it must have been to, to learn an instrument which requires strict precision in striking these keys on this large piano, and it would have taken such dedicated time every day to practice, even after many failures, and not even be able to see the keys. After all, he can't see. And so it requires even more repetition to train your movement since the element of sight is removed from hand-eye coordination. Yet he played the song masterfully and you could see the delight on his face. He enjoyed the song and it's expressively moved his body and bobbled his neck uh, back and forth because he truly loved playing. He had a love for the piano itself and for playing piano itself, for music itself. It wasn't a mere sense of duty or, or calling. You saw the delight and enjoyment he had. Or as athletes would say about the sport that they dedicate their lives to hone and improve and get better at. They had a true love for the game. Where the discipline and practice is no longer the prim primarily a burden at all because they love the instrument or sport that they play. And so Praxis, my hope is that as you reflect on drawing near to God in fellowship 
through the spiritual disciplines or what I like to call rhythms of grace, like studying God's word and drawing near to God in prayer. I pray that that would be true for your life, that these habits of grace would mark the resounding symphony of your lives. But I also hope that you will see that they are a means to know and love God more. Just like how the gospel isn't mainly that you get to heaven, but you get to enjoy God in heaven. The same is true here. Same thing that Jesus understood in his interaction with Mary in the temple. That the habits of grace aren't mainly so that you can grow to be more like Christ. Uh, yeah, that's a great goal, um, obviously, as noble and good as that is. But the habits of grace and, and spiritual disciplines is so that we get to enjoy our fellowship with God. We get to enjoy it on a deeper level. So I'm going to steal and modify a line from Piper. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in fellowship with him through the means of grace. And so may you consider it a joyous privilege to draw near to him just as Christ did. And may our attitudes change so that our affections for Christ would take proper place as we seek to draw near to him in fellowship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a grace it is for the opportunity to look to Christ as our Lord and Savior when we were helpless and running our hell-bound race, Lord. By your grace, you saved us. Not of our own works in accord, Lord, but by faith in the perfect, completed work of Christ on the cross. Yet we also look to him as an example, Lord, of who we are becoming from one degree of glory to another, Lord. And so I pray that you would help us to that end. And to that end, through these means of grace, through time in the word, so that we might hear your voice in time and prayer, Lord, as we commune uh, with you, Lord. All important elements of building a strong relationship and so that we can grow in drawing near to you. So that we would be more intimate with you, Lord, rather than distant and afar as we approach these disciplines, Lord, or perhaps are neglecting it in our lives. Will you help us, Lord? We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.